Last time we were in Matthew, we covered Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And uh, just by way of reminder, this is the passage in Matthew's account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that uh, takes place right after the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, last time we were here, we saw Jesus healing a man with leprosy and then healing the uh, servant of a centurion and then also healing Peter's mother-in-law and also many other people including those who were oppressed by demons. And that brings us up to verse 18. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 8 today. So let me, let me read the passage for you, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. So Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the, of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So, Last time, we saw Jesus displaying his divine power through healing people and through casting out demons. Before that, we saw his divine power in his, in his teaching. And uh, in this passage for today that I just read, we're 
going to see more of Jesus's divine power on display. And uh, taken together, this whole passage has as its theme uh, what is addressed specifically in verses 18 through 22, and that is the cost of following Jesus. But as I'll uh, point out to you as we get there, um, the whole passage hangs together because the whole passage is dealing with the issue of discipleship. And so, yes, there's a cost of following Jesus, but the reality is Jesus is worth that cost. So that's our theme for today, the cost and worth of following Jesus. So first of all, we'll look at verses 18 through 22 that uh, emphasize to us that there is a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. So once again, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Um, so we can, this is our opportunity to get our bearings again and terms of the geography. So this is a map of modern day Israel. By the way, this is the Gaza Strip where all of the turmoil is taking place right now. Modern day Israel goes all the way up here. And you'll, you'll notice that up here to the north, uh, bordering the modern nation of Syria is the Sea of Galilee. And uh, that is where, that's the scene of this phase of Jesus's public ministry. So here's Capernaum and the Mount of the Beatitudes, as it's called, the mountain where he taught the Sermon on the Mount was about a mile northwest of Capernaum. And he's trying to come down and he's trying to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is called a sea. It's not really a sea per se, but it is a very good sized body of water. It's about the size of Lake Isabella, the Sea of Galilee was. And so uh, <clears throat> Matthew tells us that uh, he sees this crowd and he wants to go to the other side of the um, Sea of Galilee which reminds us that Jesus was a real man. He's God in the flesh, but he is a real man. And as a real man, he got tired. And there were times when he needed a break from ministry. And really, that's what this is. He was going to the other side because of the crowd. Because ministry takes a lot of time and energy and it was time for Jesus and his disciples to leave the crowd and recharge their batteries. And so that's what they set out to do. But before they could leave, verse 19, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So the scribe was a Jewish religious leader whose main job was to, to copy the Old Testament scriptures. He was a member of the religious elite among the Jews, along with the Pharisees. 
and the elders. And uh, this caste of people, these religious elite among the Jews, they were generally opposed to Jesus. In fact, they were the main energy behind putting Jesus on the cross at the end of his life. And yet, here's a scribe approaching Jesus and confessing that he wants to follow Jesus. And not just at that time and place, but wherever you go, he said to Jesus. What a prospect. But how did Jesus respond to this wonderful prospect, to this scribe? Verse 20. He basically put up a roadblock. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. He didn't hold title to a piece of real estate, humanly speaking. He didn't have his own house. In fact, the house that was his base of operations during his ministry around Capernaum actually belonged to Peter. And so Jesus was always dependent on the kindness and generosity of others for him to survive, to gain his sustenance. And so he's basically saying to this would-be disciple, this scribe, you say you want to follow me wherever I go. But do you realize what you're getting yourself into? You're not going to live in the lap of luxury. You're going to live on the daily provision of God through the generosity of God's people. Is that the lifestyle you're willing to sign up for? That's Jesus' message to this scribe. So much for the modern false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. The point of our faith is not to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise in terms of this world's definition. The point of our faith is to bring us to God so that we will be content with whatever we have in terms of this world's goods and walk with God. And so that's what Jesus says to this scribe. And the scribe's unspoken answer must have been no, because he simply fades from the scene of Matthew's account. So there's one potential disciple turned away, this scribe, but then there's another potential disciple who approaches Jesus in verse 21. Another of the disciples, those who, the crowd following Jesus, they're not really disciples, but they're part of the crowd. Another of the, of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And that seems like a reasonable request. And it is a godly thing to honor your father and your mother. But this is a loaded question from this man. Because in Jewish culture, 
there was a lot that went behind this, including a lot of time. For, for one thing, um, this man's father wasn't even necessarily dead yet, dead yet. Maybe he was terminally ill. Maybe it was just obvious that he was approaching the end. And so this question very well could be, let me go to my father and be there with him until he dies, whenever that is. And then also funerals were often a protracted event. And sometimes after a funeral, after weeks and even months, somebody's, uh, the deceased's bones would be removed and put into an ossuary. And so that, that whole time-consuming process is bound up in this question, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus knows what's in this man's heart, and he knows what's motivating this question. And what's motivating the question is not God honoring respect for his father. What's motivating this question is lack of commitment to Jesus. Under eagerness, if you will. That's what's motivating this question. And that is what Jesus targets with his answer. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. He gets to the heart of the matter, Jesus does. And this is a reminder that there's no higher priority, no greater urgency in life than following Jesus and committing yourself to his kingdom. No delay is worth it. But Jesus calls us to follow him right now without delay. So, an example, an example passage of the cost of following Jesus. There's more on the subject in other places of the Bible, but we'll leave that here for now. There is a cost. So next in verses 23 through 27, we have Matthew's account of Jesus calming a storm where Jesus uh, shows that he is Lord of nature. Jesus is Lord of nature. Notice verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So now Jesus finally gets in the, into the boat. That's what he's been on his way to do. And the boat probably looked like this. This is not actually their boat. Uh, but this is a boat that was found in the region, actually, uh, from some 2,000 years ago. So this was typical of the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples would have gotten into. It could hold 15 men. It was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. And uh, 
it says that they uh, that his disciples followed him and then in verse 24 Matthew continues and behold there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves and so you can imagine 15 men on this boat loaded to its max and then the Sea of Galilee gets really wild and crazy and that was a typical phenomenon on the Sea of Galilee because of where it's situated. It's surrounded, it's deserty, surrounded by mountains, and then you have the Mediterranean Sea to the west. And so sometimes you have this collision between cold air and hot air, and that creates wind, and it pushes down on the water and creates these swells. In fact, the, the name of it is a squall, an intense windstorm that created dangerous conditions on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, don't forget the boat. They're not on some modern yacht or ferry boat or something. And also, bear in mind what we're going to see beginning in verse 28 with demonic activity. So even though... Matthew doesn't say there's demonic activity, we shouldn't discount the possibility that there's demonic activity in enhancing the intensity of the squall. It's possible. So in the midst of this situation in which the boat is in danger of being capsized and the men are in danger of losing their lives. What was Jesus doing? At the end of verse 24, he was asleep because he was tired and he was sleeping really soundly. And Jesus had no anxiety. I wonder what that must feel like. Well, the disciples were scared and they needed to be rescued. And so in verse 25 and 26, they went and woke Jesus saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And that phrase is a double entendre because, yeah, he wants, they want him to save them from that immediate danger, but at the same time, Jesus is the savior of sinners. That's why he came into this world. That's what his name means, Jesus. And we are all perishing, not because of a desert storm, but because of our sin and the wrath of God. And we need Jesus to save us. They needed Jesus to save them. And so there are going to be two rebukes from Jesus. And the first rebuke is towards his disciples in verse 26. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And I'm pretty sure if any one of us was with them in the boat with Jesus, 
we would have been afraid too. And we would have awoken Jesus too, begged him to, say, to save us. And so Jesus would have said to us as well, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? At the end of the day, what can this squall do to you? And here's the second rebuke. Then Jesus arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Mark, in his parallel account, Mark 4 and verse 39, adds this detail that Jesus said to the wind and, and the sea, Peace, be still. What a scene. And what was the result? And there was a great calm. Just as when Jesus healed people in the first half of Matthew chapter 8, and the malady that afflicted people uh, was gone immediately, so as soon as Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea, right then and there, instantly, there was a great calm. So much for the peculiar weather conditions that created the squall. Peace be still. And they were still. So no wonder in verse 27, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Mark adds this detail, they were filled with great fear. And Luke, same thing, they were afraid and they marveled. Why were they afraid? Well, now they were no longer afraid of capsizing in the boat and perishing in the Sea of Galilee. Now they're afraid of Jesus. They've, they've seen him heal people and cast out demons. But to say to the wind and the sea, peace be still, and then to have them instantly obey him, who is able to do that? Who is capable of issuing a command to the forces of nature and to have nature itself obey. The God of nature. That's who Jesus is. Amen. God in the flesh. God with us. Emmanuel. Jesus didn't fit into any other category of men. They found themselves in the presence of God. So they were afraid. The holy fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They're just doing what wisdom would dictate. So Jesus is Lord of nature. Then... 
In the next paragraph here, verses 28 through 34, we find that Jesus is Lord of evil spirits. Notice verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, so here's the Sea of Galilee again. They shoved off up here in the northwest from Capernaum. And uh, this is the, the country of the Gadarenes. Uh, Gadara is the, the town. So it's like immediately on the opposite side. Instead of the northwest, they're on the southeast coast of the Sea of Galilee. And what did they encounter there in the country of the Gadarenes? Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So they're hanging around uh, the place where dead people were buried. And not only that, they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. This is, what, this is what demon possession looks like. A lot of people make jokes about running with the devil and having fun with the devil. But the devil is not a pleasant creature. And demons are nothing to trifle with. When somebody is possessed by demons, oppressed by demons, they're out of their mind. And they do things like hang out with, among the dead. And they act with supernatural strength, not in a good, positive way, not in a comforting way, not in an enjoyable way, but with, with such ferocity that no one can come near to them. When people make jokes about the devil and demons, they, it's often because they, they want to hang out with people like that and have fun. But when demons get a hold of you, no one wants to be around you. Just like these demon-possessed men. And then, in verse 29, these demons spoke through these oppressed men. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out. So the demons possessing these men. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? Before the time. I'm not sure exactly what that looked like. But taken, as face, taken at face value. You have two demon possessed men. And these demons are speaking through them. Maybe they're talking in unison. And you'll notice that when these demons speak. They don't challenge who Jesus is or what authority he has. That's a given. 
The demons know who Jesus is. He's the son of God. They don't challenge him at that level. And they don't challenge his authority either. They know because of their familiarity with the word of God. They know that the son of God is going to come into the world and he's going to work his work of salvation and kingdom building. And eventually the devil and his angels are going to be vanquished. Their question is, is the time now? We didn't think that the time was now. Why are you here to torment us? This reminds us, by the way, that knowing who Jesus is and even knowing some things about Jesus isn't the same thing as being saved. James wrote, James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe in that sense and tremble. What makes the difference between being unsaved and saved is not facts about Jesus, but faith in Jesus. Amen. Trust in Jesus. Love for Jesus. The devil and his angels know a lot of facts about Jesus. More than us, I venture to say. But one thing that the devil and his angels will never do is trust Jesus, willingly obey Jesus, love Jesus. That's what separates the so-called faith of demons and saving faith. And we're called to have saving faith in Jesus. Well, what happens next? Back to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And you know, don't you, that pigs were forbidden by God for the Jews to eat. That was, pigs were not on the menu of the kosher diet. And remember where we are, this is still the, the promised land. These are Jewish people. Where do they, what are they doing with the herd of pigs? Well, they weren't supposed to herd, herd pigs like this. Anyway, there's this herd of many pigs, verse 31, and the demons begged Jesus, saying, if you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. Demons want to inhabit a living being. 
And verse 32, Jesus allowed them. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. The demons did. They came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So, so much for the unclean pigs. This isn't, by the way, Jesus being merciful to the demons. It's Jesus demonstrating his power over the demons. They had to ask him. And he gave his permission. And he gave his permission because it suited his purposes. It wasn't because he's trying to be good to the demons. It suited him. And how did the people of the Gadarenes react? The herdsmen fled and going into the city of Gadara, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And you think, wow, a whole city of prospective disciples. This is awesome. But when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And this is a reminder, a sobering reminder, that people are not naturally drawn to the holiness and power of God. People want a God that they can manage, that fits into a box, cage, But a sovereign and holy Messiah like Jesus, who's beyond man's ability to tame, is more than most people can handle, including these people. They had a glimpse of the real Jesus, not the action figure the real thing, and they wanted to have nothing to do with him. This goes against the philosophy, by the way, of Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, and other atheists like him who believed and wrote that people invented the idea of God to try to tame nature. But the Bible teaches, see Romans chapter 1, the Bible teaches that men invented false religion to try to tame God. But the real God is untamable. The real Jesus is unmanageable. He's sovereign, he's powerful, he's holy. And he didn't come to mess around. 
but he did come to save sinners like us from our sins. So that brings us to our main takeaway. There, I have never seen this before until uh, studying for the message today, but I've never seen this common thread of discipleship in that passage. It, it's a little bit more obvious in verses 18 through 22, this cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. But notice how after Jesus puts up these roadblocks to these would-be disciples in verses 18 through 23, then his actual disciples follow him in verse 23. And then uh, when he gets to the other side, of the Sea of Galilee, here's a whole city coming out to meet Jesus only to refuse to follow him. So that's the overarching theme. And what pulls it all together is, yes, there is a cost. Yes, it's true that many people realize who Jesus is and what he's all about and what want nothing to do with him. They count the cost and they say, no, thank you. Jesus, stay away from my life. But the teaching of the Bible is that Jesus is infinitely worthy of our devotion of our faith, of our trust, of our following him. Yes, he wants us to count the cost, but he is worth it. Amen. He's worth the cost. Think about how Jesus is presented in the Bible. He's more than our ticket to heaven. When, when we're saved, we come into a relationship with Jesus. We're in him. He's in us. We know Jesus. We love Jesus. We walk with Jesus. And the Bible says things like this about Jesus. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And your life as a believer is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is our all in all. Now. Not just when we die, but now. And the Apostle Paul, when he gives his testimony about him counting the cost of following Jesus, he wrote this in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus has power over nature itself. 
Jesus has power over evil spirits. There is nothing or no one who can hold Jesus back from giving us meaning and purpose and fulfillment and true joy in this life and the life to come. There is nothing, in other words, in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, there's a cost, but Jesus is worth it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our great Savior. We thank you for all that Jesus is and all that he has done for us. And we pray, Lord, that those of us who name his name and who do know him savingly, Lord, help us to think of Jesus as being more valuable than we have thought of before. Help us to love him more, to treasure him more, to obey him more. And we pray, Lord, for the unsaved among us that you would open their eyes to see the emptiness of life without Christ, the emptiness, the vanity of all that this world has to offer. And we pray that some, many, would turn to Jesus for salvation in this life and for eternity. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.